I'm not a lot of, and I'm, but I'm all, I'm not an audiophile exactly. I, really? So yeah, the Neil Young stuff. I mean, I you know I really respect that he that he bothers, and <laughs> he he's got bother. he's got the means and the and the platform to make the case. But you know, he also he does seem like an old guy complaining. Yeah. And so it seems a little unconvincing in some ways. I mean, Stephen Jobs was a big audiophile. Have you ever seen those photos of his personal stereo? It's incredible. You know, he had this stereo that cost God knows what. There's this beautiful photo mm-hmm. of his home where that's all that's in the living room. You know, no furniture, just this beautiful Just stereo. like a blender for his juice. and then <laughs> Yeah, I think it was pre-juice maybe, yeah. you know, the stereo thing. And so it's funny because that generation was so uh, attached to hi-fi. They grew up with it and then they, uh, you know, they were the consumers who first had the money in the 60s to – in the seventies to make that stuff so fine and so desirable. And then, um, and then, but then that generation is also the generation that's handed us all the tech, mm-hmm. all the digital mm-hmm. tools, which by and large seem to have denigrated that hi-fi ideal. So, you know, Neil Young being the, the exception that proves the rule, but um, sort of screaming in the darkness amongst his contemporaries. Yeah, like, I mean, Steve, Steve Jobs, I'm sure, I'm sure used the iPod, but I'm sure that he was using the iPod and then would still go home and listen to his, you know, $50,000 stereo system. And I think that's kind of the, the breakdown here is, is there's the, the convenience, but once you're off the, you know, the subway or, you know, you've gone back home, then, then you want that sort of full fidelity I think that's probably what he did for himself, judging by, you know, the photos I've seen. And also really the primacy he gave music. I mean, he did put music at the center of his company kind of for no reason other than that he loved it. I mean, he stole the name from the Beatles on top of everything. Yeah, it was there from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. But I think it was never uh, necessarily a profitable part of the company. Mm. And I think it's still... It still is a sort of poor cousin to tech. You know, I think of music... Music has been so important to to consumer technology, digital technology, in that it's been this this lure, this bait um, for fun things you can do with your tech equipment. In other words, he didn't launch a record label. Exactly. Yeah, he didn't start signing bands. Not or, that he not that he could, given the contract <laughs> that he signed with with, with that, the Beatles. With Beatles yeah. <laughs> he seemed to ignore that in the yeah. end, anyway. But yeah, I mean, it, it it's sort of been this this bait. You know, I feel like. Music has been sort of served up as the mm-hmm. as the um, the easy entry level product that tech could deliver, cheap if not free, and um, portable. With the iPod, it really was kind of the end all be all. I mean, they did a little bit of video at the end, you know, before it sort of moved into the iPhone form factor. But it really was the, the content that they were offering at that point. Obviously, things have changed now with you know the smartphone, where it's just some kind of minimal aspect there. Right. I mean, I think it took time for tech to to gain the power at that price point mm-hmm. to deliver video, obviously, and now everything else that we can get on our smartphones. But first it was music. Music was easily packageable and cheaply shared, as we know, through Napster and everything else. And the MP3, um, you know, made all that possible. So lossy compression was the tool that enabled uh, music to be mm-hmm. squeezed into the tech and sort of served up as this bait. So anyway, I mean, in terms of my own listening, I actually use all formats. I mean, I listen to LPs and I listen to CDs. I've actually come to 
latter-day appreciation of CDs. I mean, now that we've lost them, <laughs> we're really, I'm really missing them. Yeah. Um, were you, yeah. were, you were the guy buying up the vinyl when the CDs first came out, oh, and now you're the guy buying complete. the CDs when the vinyl's back. It, it, yeah, well, I guess I'm I'm cheap. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> I was buying the vinyl when Tower, you know, had it all yeah. dumping all the beautiful jazz records, new from Blue Note and Fantasy uh, Tower here in Boston. Yeah. Just used to have these racks of records that they were cutouts essentially as vinyl was losing favor, especially with um, jazz and classical buyers when CDs first came in and jazz and classical CDs were very expensive. So I, I, you know, raced through uh, all this beautiful volume of material that I couldn't have afforded on CD. I got it on cutout LPs and now I'm doing the same thing with CD uh, because um, people have just dumped their CDs. I mean, literally you can find them in the street. You know, when people move in Cambridge, as so many students move all the time, uh, they just leave boxes of CDs if they still have them literally on the street yeah. or they're in the thrift stores, the way the LPs were when I was in, you know, college and just post. So, yeah, I've, I, I, I use all formats, though. I'm not cassettes. I haven't gone that back to that, mm-hmm. although I haven't thrown them away. But, but um, it's hard you, to You say that, like, as though I have not gone back to that yet. That's sort of purely like a pure visual aesthetic, right? That's the one appeal of the cassette. There, there's no oral aesthetic in the same way. I can't find an oral value yeah. to cassette listening. It's so hissy and so compressed in a yeah. way I don't really enjoy. But, you know, I, I understand that other people find it nostalgic, which makes sense. Sure. Uh, people love 8-bit audio, too, who grew up with, you know, primitive video games. I don't get that either, but but I understand all audio can have this kind of emotional power, which which gets back to why I'm not too fussy about format in terms of um you know oh i won't listen to this i do want to listen Mm -hmm. to this it's more i think every format carries a different set of meanings and associations and also strengths and weaknesses uh you know cds were a big problem when they came out because a lot of things that had been recorded for vinyl were thrown onto cd Mm -hmm. and were mastered really badly for cd and they did sound terrible at the time Uh, plus they were expensive and, uh, you know, now I think we've got the reverse situation where a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fuss over the vinyl revival, but a lot of new vinyl doesn't sound very good uh, compared to vintage vinyl. And I think, again, it's because records are not being mastered for vinyl now. They're being mastered for digital in all its formats. And then they kind of throw them onto LP as an afterthought, and it doesn't always work. Uh, you know, some people are taking great care with current vinyl and more power to them but generally yeah. i think um it's not really the height of its uh of its uh it's not the heyday for new vinyl recordings um the way it was and and now i you know i think people are doing amazing things with digital and i think it's it's you know you're cutting off your nose to spite your face to mm-hmm. to to ignore it uh how good digital can uh sound and be used um, can be very innovative. I listened to a record like Holly Herndon's new record this year. She's an artist, American, who's living in Berlin and works with very high-level understanding of computer technology. Mm. Her new record involved artificial intelligence. She mm. taught a machine to sing and then sang alongside it. Uh, she and a whole group, vocal group. And um, that's music that can't be made except with these digital tools. And it's uh, amazing sounding. It's, yeah. uh, you know, ear expanding for me to listen to. 
Um, but I w- I'm like waiting for that to come on LP. Why would I? It does on the. I'm not familiar with that album, and on the face of it, it does sound um, a little bit gimmicky, right? Is it the sort of thing that you would t- derive pleasure from listening to if you didn't know the the conditions under which it was, you know, composed? This one, yes. Yeah. Actually, if if what it sounds like most of all is Renaissance music, mm. it sounds like a vocal album by uh, maybe a Renaissance group that just went a few steps further than they really should have for their classical label and kind of freaked out. And it sounds like early music. It's essentially a vocal group, but one member of the group is a computer. And, um, you know, she does a remarkable job of uh, working with with that um, set of constraints, really, that she gave Mm -hmm. herself, like any artist. And then there are moments that sound unmistakably digital, despite it being a, a vocal record, because uh, of the computer. But this, these are people, you know, that represents a group of artists, I think, who are really using the medium uh, as an artistic medium, like, like all media. Uh, you can use anything and make art mm-hmm. out of it, you know. And I think that's, that's not changing with our changing format or changing tech. What has happened, though, and that this this does uh, cut to my own version of the old man Neil Young argument, <laughs> is I worry that um, people just don't hear enough good sounding mm. audio in their daily in their daily lives. I had I bought I bought a new record player recently. Had just been busted for a really long time, and you know I've, I've got decent speakers at home, but everything had been coming through Spotify, and and I did for the first time in at least a year put on a. Just a full, like Thelonious Monk, just like solo piano record. Yeah, on great vinyl. choice. Yeah, I remember in the early days, sort of like you know, trying to like force myself to, to and I wasn't sure if I was actually like hearing the like nuances. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about these sorts of things, but I put it on. And I was like, oh no, this is just I don't know. This I feel this in my soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I feel this in, in my bones in yeah. a way that I'm not on Spotify. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I just think that is a, a natural human reaction, and you don't have to be an audiophile yeah. to have it. Something like Monk's Piano, you feel it physically. Mm. You really do. Uh, or I do, and obviously you do too. Yeah. And I and I think that's not something that's only a rarefied experience or shouldn't only be a rarefied experience for audiophiles. I think it's a just a basic need mm. and a pleasure. And, and a very important aspect of our art, of music, and that kind of physical response to music, we have it obviously in person with acoustic instruments, not always I'm finding with current PA systems, mm. which have also gone as digital as everything else and have a whole host of problems because of that to me. But, you know, just you you can't help but respond to an instrument. And I think that people do have that experience in their non-plugged-in lives. But the relationship to our media, our recorded media, feels um, sort of getting thinner and thinner uh, compared to the very rich 20th century history of recording technology, which hit a kind of height at that moment when Steve Jobs and Neil Young bought their big expensive stereo systems when they first got their big paychecks. You know, they they were going out and buying equipment that, that, you know, I'll never hear the likes of. Uh, but that was just the top of it. It filtered all the way down. You know? Sure. As somebody who is for, first and foremost, or at least, you know, like best known for being a musician, are you empathetic to this Neil Young idea from the standpoint of, you know, you putting something on record and wanting people to experience it that way? There's where I, I lose him in that I don't know. I don't have that for myself. I feel like, you know, from the very beginning, my experience of being a musician making records 
is that the records leave your control immediately. Mm -hmm. You have no control over how they're heard or even how they're understood. And I think every musician knows that, um, at least after the first experience. You can rail against it. And some musicians do their whole careers. You know, they rail against being misunderstood by critics or listened to the wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. That gets back to where I part ways with that kind of idea that Neil Young is pursuing of a kind of... um, perfection and control over the whole chain you know the truth is you know you make your music people hear it every which way and you it's beautiful i mean i mean if you take pleasure in that idea then you it leads to a whole other set of of thoughts about it which is yeah your music is just heard in every which way it's mm-hmm. heard in every format it's heard in every type of speaker it's heard you know from the next room it's heard on a radio it's heard in the background it's heard in the foreground it's heard in headphones it's just heard everywhere and if you're lucky and if you want your music heard, I think you got to kind of embrace that. So to me, that's not really a problem. Like the fact that my music exists in multiple formats is um, just means there are more ch- chances for it you know, to be enjoyed and heard in different circumstances. And I feel that way myself about music. So I do stream music sometimes, but I do feel um, maybe alert to what works in the format, what doesn't. And I guess maybe also because partly because of my profession and partly out of just personal curiosity, I do listen to multiple versions of media all the time. And it starts to make you feel like, well, this isn't right, you know, sometimes. A a simple test to me right now for people's personal technology is get off Bluetooth. Listen to the difference between a hard wire to whatever you're using, speakers or headphones, and the Bluetooth connection. I, I can feel and hear that difference. And this we're talking about two digital formats, yeah. right? We're not talking more bits, anything. We're talking about MP3s or whatever your M4A. Maybe you have a lossless uh, file you're playing. But if your connection is Bluetooth, it's it's adding another level of lossy compression. You're, you're losing information. I think it was Alan Rab- Ravenstein who I had on the show who was discussing the um – just the complete ubiquity of music now. And and not I'm, I'm not even just talking about like, you know, being able to walk down the street, but I'm, you know, like every cafe, everything there's, there's constantly music playing, which like, I, you know, as a music lover sounds like this kind of like wonderful utopian thing, you know, that you can go into a coffee shop and they're playing jazz music, but, or a version of hell. Where do you land on that? I mean, is, <laughs> yeah, is that, is yeah. that the fact that you just like the music is completely <laughs> ambient and you can't escape it now? Is that, doing active harm (laughs) i wonder it's it's funny i mean there's so much music now and yet so much listening is personalized people are wearing headphones and you're not hearing what they're hearing and there's literally like algorithms working on spotify right now to tell you what to listen to next absolutely and that's you know i think the lion's share of streaming listening is being directed by that but yeah there there is so much more audio in our daily lives right now. And this gets back to my own version of the old man argument, which is, oh, we've got so much audio swimming around us, uh, both accidental and deliberate. And yet so little of it sounds really good. And that does really worry me because I think you accommodate uh, whatever you're listening to. So, you know, you can hear a lot. I'm sure a a teenager listening to Billie Eilish on their, uh, you know, one earbud and sharing with their friend is is having a, a great listening experience. Is that any is that any different than you know like the, the old classic? I've heard it attributed to both like Brian Wilson and like you know Barry Gordy that this needs to sound good on a you know a, a shitty 
car stereo, is right. that any different than the single earbud at the end of the day? Yeah, no, I think it's the same thing. Yeah. Exactly. It is just another way to hear music. And I think that that's, that's totally valid. And I, I would never argue against it. And I partake of it myself. But at the same time, I don't think those same teens are having very many opportunities to hear really uh, well, rec- well mm. reproduced recorded music. Yeah. Uh, not, not, Unwell recorded, but not well reproduced. But also unwell recorded. The compression and everything else that's in production right it, now. It definitely starts to move toward the medium it will be heard in, yeah. for sure. I, I saw a great um, video with uh, one of the guys who's mixed Frank Ocean. And um, I'm forgetting his name now, the engineer, but he was wonderfully fr- frank uh, about <laughs> his work. And uh, it was one of these things from like Mix Magazine or something like that, where yeah. they take you inside the guy's studio. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I love things like that. Yeah. I'm a, such a sucker for anything in a yeah. recording studio. I love that stuff. And so I'm looking at this on, on YouTube, of course. So, you know, I'm not... Beautiful I'm 4K. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And audio is terrible. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at it because I'm curious, because the Frank Ocean record sounds good, mm-hmm. actually, to me. I'm curious what he's using. So there he is in his studio, and he's got these speakers that I don't recognize a brand or anything, and I Googled them later, and they cost like Fifty thousand dollars per speaker, like not even the pair, kind of. They're so expensive, you've never heard of the brand. No, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, like off the chart. And then he's like, "So you know, I set up the mix in these, and then I I double check it on these, and I look, and I'm like, don't recognize that brand either. But they're they're like, um, th- you know, three or four inch size speakers. Yeah." Some Chinese, probably Bluetooth. Yeah, and they say yeah. to him, well, what are those? And he's like, well, I went on Amazon and I just bought the cheapest computer speakers that were there because yeah. I figured, well, that is a lot of people are listening to those. And he said, and they're actually pretty transparent. Like, you can tell what's going on in them. But, of course, you lose a whole lot mm-hmm. from the mix from your $50,000 per speaker uh, gear. And the I think it was the interviewer asked, or anyway, he volunteered this information, said – what he has to make sure really reads in these tiny little speakers is, you know, the snare. Like, mm. get make sure that the rhythm is cutting through this tiny, tiny little thing. And then his third double check is his power book that's there, of course, on his desk. Uh, and they're built-in speakers. Yeah. So you're talking about – so, you know, I looked at that. I went straight on Amazon and ordered those little speakers because I was like, I can't order those $50,000 ones. <laughs> but I could order yeah. these. They were literally $10 for the pair. And, um, you know, so, so I will do this in my home studio, too. I'll bump it down there and just out of curiosity because you got to remember it will be heard that way. Now, here's the difference between me and a Grammy-winning producer. Mm. I don't change my mix at all after I've listened to it on that uh, because – What if it sounds terrible? What if it doesn't come through at all? It's, it's kind of information for me, yeah. but um, i got to admit I, ne- I never go then back to my mix yeah. and I'm like, well, i got to change it because <laughs> – who am I kidding? Yeah. You know? But it is interesting just in terms of what music, yeah. how it's being made, what the slant is. You know, a lot of hip hop and pop production right now, which is sort of merged, interestingly, sonically to my ears, is so high end. Despite all this sub bass stuff that yeah. happens when you when you get it into a system that has a subwoofer. But so much of it's stuck in this weird high end to my ears and i think it's because of the tiny little speakers and that it will read in these tiny little speakers whereas you know my generation everything was stuck in the mids because i think we were mixing for bookshelf speakers i think what boggles my mind though about this is you know i i think it was the old town road 
If I remember correctly, I think Lil Nas X just took some like loop offline, like some something that somebody put online. So like, you know, this was something that like some kid I think had just made on his MacBook. And yet that's also biggest whatever single of all time. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you've got these two like very disparate production styles that, you know, these like incredibly expensive studios and then people like literally just making like bedroom mixes and there doesn't seem to be much breakdown between the two. Yeah, I think it's it, it is a remarkable moment in that way, which gets back to the to the Apple thing. I mean, I think this was the dream in some ways, the democratic dream of the Mac. Yeah. And software that you know we'd all have access to be nice if it was all shareware but you know what i mean Uh, that you can make a loop and and ultimately even a whole hit on well even on your phone if you wanted to so there's this democratization of the technology but it comes with a whole set of uh assumptions and uh restrictions one of them being things are going to sound terrible So, you know, it's kind of like most people won't care. Well, that's the problem is that I think that, again, I don't begrudge anybody the pleasure they derive from it. And and I can hear some really great work coming out of all this. Uh, At the same time, I just feel like people aren't getting the option. They're Mm. not hearing the other side of it. And I feel like that's the weird thing. It's as if you said, you know, okay, well, we're going to build Symphony Hall in Boston. Yeah. And it's going to be just the best sounding hall in the world, which that was the goal of it at the time. But no one's going to get to hear it, you know, because uh, if we're going to make music for the people, uh, you've got to go hear, you know, the symphony in a in a in a cardboard box. And that's not the way that that's not the ideal. I mean, the ideal is that everyone could find their way to Symphony Hall. I mean, that would be the true democratic dream for me would be let everyone in to Symphony Hall, not um, let's put classical music in a cardboard box and pretend it's the same thing. And that's that's the problem. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it evokes all kinds of issues of, you know, what what do we mean by privilege and, and democratization and, you know, what, what presumptions are we making? It's such an obvious thing now that I'm thinking about it, but I hadn't thought about it this way until right now. But it's very clear to me right now that, you know, this is a, a moment in time. These are all new technologies. You know, I, 5G is coming. Streaming is going to get better. Bit rates are going to go up. I don't, I don't know how long it'll take, if ever, we get to a point where all the music we're listening to sounds like vinyl quality. But all the stuff that's produced now is just going to sound like garbage because <laughs> we're going to be listening to it on these, like, really powerful pieces of technology that are capable of playing things back like a symphony. Right. And, like, you know, you talk about, like, gate snare drums of the 80s or mm-hmm. or the god-awful like autotune stuff this production choices that really put stuff in their time now it's just going to be these like horribly recorded digital songs and they're they're just going to be lost to time it's a very funny idea i but you know I, what i think is that our imaginations change i mean i think we get the tech that we imagine yeah and so if um you know if we lose that sense of the full spectrum of sound which the 20th century had worked very hard to get to uh, you know, I don't know that we get it back. I don't think it goes... Here's why I don't think it goes away. Look at video. Mm-hmm. Look at the two televisions, but also remember those little like remote controls you would get? Yeah. Just the most awful video. And now it's because of, you know, Sony and all these companies are pushing 4K, a higher resolution. So I think there's a very real possibility that we do get back up to a higher resolution in the future. Although we lose film. Yeah. I mean, you know, the analog, the the real height of that medium to me was developed through film. Yeah. And we're losing it. I mean, we've lost it in the cinema. And now, 
you know, we're not going to get it back. I mean, they've, they've literally shut the factories yeah. that makes the film. And that's where, you know, so yeah, we'll go, you know, HD and then everything gets higher and higher bit rate, but it doesn't get back mm. to uh, what film is and how beautiful it is. Now that's an aesthetic judgment. And yeah. obviously it's coming from my perspective, which, you know, I'm a certain age and I had a whole access to a whole lot of experiences that were very meaningful to me in theaters and cinemas watching real film. But are you comparing film to tape in this? Uh, film, yeah, to me, film and uh, it's kind of the height of analog recording and analog yeah. re audio recording technology are equivalent. In fact, they're they're related. I mean, tape and film were the same medium. And um, the two came up together in the 20th century, kind of perfected and then disappeared with digital. In a way, we've held on. I mean, music was the first to go digital, as we were talking at the beginning of this conversation, because it was so small and could be easily compressed and people didn't notice. Whereas video, yeah. I think people saw... We're, we're a hypervisual society and people saw right away how bad, yeah. you know, grainy video looks. Yeah. Um, so it's taken a lot longer for film to move to streaming and all of this. Uh, but at the same time, again, because music tends to be cheaper, we've held on to a lot more of our old technology in audio than they can in cinema. I mean, really, it's shocking now that you can't even make a film. Really, it's so hard to make a film as a real film anymore. And this is... Um, you know, that's a real loss to me. Then, you know, then I question myself. It's like, well, you're just being nostalgic. And I mean, yeah, to some degree, yes. But in another way, it just, there is a, there is a, a grandeur to the medium that I think it's hard to deny is very different. Uh, HD video, to me, um, looks so flat, for yeah. example. Uh, you have no depth. And really, that's a similar judgment I feel with a lot of audio digital audio tends to be very flat and not have the kind of depth that we got from our analog, our old analog recording chain. Now, why that is, I'm not entirely sure. I wrote in my book called The New Analog uh, about depth as a kind of a quality of listening that I think we were trained to hear for um, through analog media. You listen to through the surface noise of the record to the program material, mm. and then you end up listening past the program material to the noises in the recording studio. You know, that's kind of like the path, I think, of your list training, listening, listening, being trained by uh, the Beach Boys and the Beatles. So you think that because there's noise in front of the signal that we hear unintended signal? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, there were unintended signals, first of all, in the whole signal path, and then in our in our reproducing equipment, too. I mean, you knew that you weren't supposed to be paying attention to the, to the yeah. um, surface noise of the LP. So you're already kind of like tuning, like that's there and you can hear it, but you're also knowing, you know, I want to listen past that. And then, you know, you listen a lot to a record you love, and then you're like, I want to listen past that, too, you know? There's, there's, there's a degree of it. I mean, you know, listen to, like, Glenn Gould or, like, Keith Jarrett or something. You can mm -hmm. still hear them, like, humming while they're playing the piano. There's Absolutely. still some, you know, even on digital, there's still some of that unintended noise on there. Oh, sure. It, and so the argument I've made is that when in digital, I think that the unintended noise actually becomes part of the signal path. It becomes part of the signal. Now, this is a little bit of a subtle argument, but I really, I'm attracted to arguments like this. But, yeah. but, uh, but I, I make the case in my book that digital is all signal because we eliminate the noise we don't, yeah. we don't want. And that is possible in digital. Now, that's not possible in analog recording. Mm. You can never eliminate the noise, all the noise. 
you can minimize it. Pablo Casals, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the cellist. Because of the way it's mic'd up, you can hear the breathing on there. Mm-hmm. The reason why, if I'm going to remaster that, I'm not going to take the breathing off is because I assume that that's part of the, the signal. Exactly. Because once you're putting it into a digital format, yeah. you that's have a that choice. choice. That's been made. Exactly. Yeah. You have that choice. And because that choice is there in digital, it's as easy as you know you put it up on a screen and you just wipe it out. Because that choice is there, I think choices are made for us all along the, the digital signal path. And the choice is made of signal to signal to signal to signal. We, we don't have noise. You can't get pack, you can't get back behind the choice made by the software engineer who created the digital program that you're in. You can't get behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think that our program material, although it can contain noise, like always, um, it becomes the same, it's at the same depth, it's at the same level. And that, I think, is a different way of listening. It gets back again to the tiny little speakers and the tinny sound we have right now. Yeah. It's a, a sort of ideal. Everything is audible at once. You know, you don't have to listen to it twice, much less a hundred times before you hear the air conditioning at the end of Sgt. Pepper's. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was only available once you listened past and past and past and past. And then you uncover that noise there at the, at the base of it. And that, I think, in digital is almost an impossibility. To take video again as the example, I think, you know, HD video, we see too much. Like, it's hard to, mm-hmm. to it's hard not to look. Yeah. You know, sports right now for me are very hard to see on television. CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, used to happen the same week as AVN, the adult video show. <laughs> and they were pushing, like, I remember when Blu-ray and HD DVD came along, they were pushing it real hard. And, like, those were not successful formats in pornography. <laughs> There are some things that you don't necessarily want to see in, you know, high definition. Yeah, but of course they were first to jump on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's it. I feel like, you know, television looks awful to me yeah. because there's just, you see everything and uh, you really don't want to. And I, a younger person, I'm sure, who's, who, who is training themselves visually on this yeah. material more than I, I am, can see more at once. Because I, I get like dizzy from it sometimes. I cannot make heads or tails mm. anymore of like, you know, I, I'm not a football fan, but yeah. sometimes I'll walk in, at the gym or, or bar, you'll see TV. Sure. And I watched football as a kid. Yeah. And football as a kid was like this very funny exercise of like straining to see where the ball mm-hmm. is, you know. And, Remember uh, when they first started highlighting the puck in hockey? I, I, that's past my time yeah. watching TV already. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even have that. It was just, uh, you know, like, what the hell's going on? That sense of, like, what the hell's going on is a kind of a quality of analog media. Yeah, but is that a good experience for watching football? I think probably not. Football was at a low point <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> on TV at there. You know, it, it did not become, yeah. you know, the biggest thing on television until they figured out better ways to broadcast it. Um, but, but it, to go back to, you know, as an art medium, that hunt for the information is, I think, a part of artistic perception and, mm. and also of artistic production. I mean, you, you do want to engage your listener or your viewer in that kind of hunt. Yeah. And I think that's part of, of what, how we communicate through our artistic media it may not be, how most television communicates. Perhaps the days of, you know, getting really high and listening to Dark Side of the Moon are over. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I I think that, you know, I, I hope that every Billie Eilish fan 
will also go for that kind of depth. I don't know who the you know equivalent would be. I don't think it would be Billie Eilish. You know, maybe it would be like Flying Lotus or somebody in there, mm-hmm. like just really like layering on. You know, getting a little bit psychedelic, mm-hmm. like Billie Eilish. You know, you weren't listening to like Linda Ronstadt really necessarily like in that same way, but. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that there's some current kind of equivalent to that. Although I have to say, I am such a sucker for soft rock and for yeah. AM radio sure. from the era, uh, partly because it's extremely trippy. Yeah. It's, you know, the, sometimes you like, you listen carefully. Have you ever read uh, the Thomas Pynchon book, Crying of Lot 49? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the character? Uh, I, I don't remember it well enough. But... So there's a radio DJ mm-hmm. character and uh, who's had like a bad trip. And what's happened, or maybe not bad, but too many. And what's happened to him is he can't not listen to every detail in every recording that he hears. And so he'll, he, you know, it's, it's like a very like, Thomas Pynchon problem. Yeah. So there'll be like background music on in Muzak, and he's yeah. hearing like the quarter tone sharp violin in the violin mm. section on the worst possible sappy recording. It's always stuck in my mind because it's brilliant, one yeah. of those brilliant Thomas Pynchon things. But it, it's kind of happened to me. Not through LSD, I don't take it, but but the through just close listening and the close listening that's possible, even on what you what you might dismiss as really commercial recordings yeah. from the '60s, especially, is intense. You can listen to every violin in those sections. You know, you put on a Phil Spector recording to take a a kind of master mm-hmm. of that, and you can get really lost in the detail, just like hunting after the you know multiplication of sounds that are there. His are particularly crazy because they're often in unison. So, you know, you've got like two drum kits, three drum kits playing in unison. And there's something just extremely spooky and weird about that listening experience mm. where you're just going like back and back and back in these layers and depths of sound. But it can be attached to really, you know, I listen to a radio station. There's an AM radio station, one left, basically, that plays music in my neighborhood. And they play what used to be called beautiful music. Beautiful music was easy listening. Okay, It was a radio format back in the day. AM Gold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But not not classic hits, more beautiful music, relaxing, sort of dentist music okay. a little bit. Okay. But um What's that what's that woman, um that the, AM DJ? Delilah. Oh yeah, Delilah. Oh Delilah's a trip. Yeah, even Delilah's voice yeah. sends me into kind of a <laughs> pinchin like reverie. Yeah. It, that kind of AM radio, of course it's it's the thinnest sounding audio from that era. Mm-hmm. As we were talking about before, it was mixed for tiny little speakers. So you're not talking about the Doobie Brothers here. You're talking about really almost like borderline Muzak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Muzak and or, you know, top 40 hits of a bygone era Yeah. Um, or B-sides from that era. Very thin set thrift store records from yeah. from when I started buying records. Alpert, yeah, they're beautifully recorded often. You know, the stuff was recorded at the height of the mm-hmm. technology in mostly Hollywood studios. And it sounds incredible. And even if the end product was not the most um, deep, you know, this is not Dark Side of the Moon. This is like just whatever, a thrift store record beautifully recorded in 1965, heard on an AM radio speaker. That is the equivalent of, you know, contemporary digital top 40 hits heard on an iPhone speaker. But there's still a depth to it. There's a depth to it, and that is where... The reason I was sort of interested in like pushing at those extreme examples are because there I think you, you're getting closer to like to like. Like Dark Side of the Moon yeah. on a top notch, you know, Stephen Jobs' stereo, yeah. that's not going to happen. But, um, you know, compared to what we're getting at the moment, sort of height of listening. But that like 
the way things sounded in the mid-60s on an AM radio compared to where they sound on an iPhone, that's pretty close. And then, you know, I use those kinds of examples to kind of test myself. It's like, what am I really experiencing that's different? And depth is one of those things I came up with. So is it, it's air? Is, is air the difference? I think air is a way to to get at that description. Like, well, you know, we have so few words. Not just like literally air, not not like air as in like silence, but I was, I think I was watching a, a talk that you gave and, you know, you made the point that there's no such thing as a digital speaker. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of air, right? I mean, that like the Steve Albini thing, right? Mm-hmm. It has it's to where be. you were recording the drums in the room. Mm-hmm. And well, the speaker, because ultimately our ears are analog yeah. and we need that digital signal retranslated to an analog device that moves the air, that moves yeah. our ear. I, I guess maybe um, yeah. bone conduction is probably about as close as you get to a digital. You know, I, I get my hearing tested every year and, and bone conduction is part of the hearing yeah. test. And it's fascinating because you lose location when they do yeah. that. Have you had that test? Yeah. But the, my um, doctor There's no depth was, either, really. Right. It just comes everywhere and nowhere yeah. at once. But my doctor was telling me that, um, you know, they're developing hearing aids to go that way instead of through your eardrum because yeah. you can get Well, because the way, they, you're, uh, the way hearing aids work now, you have to keep turning them up and mm-hmm. you just keep losing hearing. Right. So you can bypass the eardrum altogether. Yeah. That's the way I think we hear those subwoofers that are mm. so popular in, to get to the other side of the current digital equation, which is giant sound systems this is this is the partner to the sort of the flip the b-side to the iphone or the earbud experience where you're feeling in your bones but in a very different way i think you're only feeling it in your bones i think the subwoofer bass you really it's bone conduction essentially Mm. uh you lose um location when you're listening to music like bass is already hard to locate but that's super impossible so you get this feeling of you know dance club or festival sound system or or you know souped up car stereo any of these experiences that people have right now um you're getting this like bass that's going through your bones not your ears and you lose a whole lot of depth through that kind of listening too again it's a very flat experience to me a flattening like i feel physically flattened yeah by that kind of audio festivals are a bet noir for me at the moment because again i feel like why make people's experience of live music which is such a natural, full experience of sound. Why limit it or, or corral it, shall we say, into this super artificial situation of you know tens of thousands of people hearing at once, which means we have to build a sound system to communicate to those many people at once, which means we've got a terrible sound system. That is not the height of audio. But of course, this is at the moment what people are experiencing as that's the equivalent of the Stephen Jobs stereo of hi-fi because that's so much more than you could ever have at home, right? Or just in your your own meager means of reaching equipment. It's like, you know, think of the hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on these sound systems. But they sound terrible. Yeah. And I think musicians know that. But, you know, everybody for economic reasons is, is going with it. But you can't hear a band sound worse than they sound at a festival, sure. an outdoor festival. I do think that festival promoters kind of go out of their way to make it as miserable of an experience as possible, but that's just <laughs> kind of... they trying. I won't go to them just because it's like, why would I subject myself to any of this? It yeah, just I, I know, but, but this is the experience of yeah. live music right now. Yeah. I had an interesting conversation with a DJ who uh, here in Boston who works for um, the sports teams. Mm. And he comes out of FM radio. He's a very he's a sophisticated DJ. And uh, if you ever notice, our Boston sports teams have great music 
playing. I do know for a fact through the Chum Sharpling show, I don't know if mm-hmm. you're familiar with him, yeah. but uh, uh, the uh, organ player from yes, the for Red Fenway. Sox, uh, exactly. Uh, Josh yeah, Josh. Cantor. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, Josh is amazing. Yeah. And Josh plays the live organ, um, which, thank God, the Red Sox still use a little. And Josh plays incredible music that way. But then his DJ counterpart, who's there at the, sh- at the game mm. too, uh, who's playing the walk-up music for all the players, but then also, you know, pumping up the crowd. And You guys um, did kill Sweet Caroline in the rest of the world, <laughs> by the way. I just want to put that on record. Sweet Caroline, get, to get back to the other part of the conversation, that's a good example of a well-recorded song yeah. that I don't love. I think it's a fine song. I like, I like Neil Diamond, mm-hmm. but the... Boston sports crowd has yeah. has done something to it wherein it cannot be played or sung karaoke or anything else in a public arena without all of those interjections. Right. It's yeah, like the Rocky yeah. Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or yeah, or uh, Gary Glitter, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, still played despite all his Well, problems. yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> one's, that one's ruined for other reasons. <laughs> but God, it's a huge soccer. And uh, the White Stripes have written a new one, you know, which is amazing. Triumph. Oh, Seven Nation Army? Incredible. It's played in sports stadiums all over the sure. world. God, I just didn't see. Oh, I don't know that any of them were intended for that. But man, it just like. I don't think any of the totally three of those, field, those yeah. three examples, Gary Glitter, Seven Nation Army, no. or certainly Sweet Caroline was not written for that purpose. It's not like, um, you know, CNC Music Factory. Right. Or something. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, but I love that again, you know, because I really, I do love the way people purpose music for themselves. Yeah. So I'm into the Sweet Caroline repurposing. And if you've been to Fenway, if you've never been. It's re- been a long time. But I yeah, recommend I should, it. Yeah. Fenway Survives is a great public experience. One of the last few. But anyway, it's really interesting to speak to the DJ. So they also play great recorded music in uh, Fenway and also uh, at the other sports arenas in town. And the same guy works several of the different arenas for the different teams. And he was telling me how different it is to play music for 35,000 people versus 60,000 people. You know, like going from the, ba- the baseball yeah. stadium to the football stadium. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. But that speaks again to um, how particular our oral experiences really are. He's like, you know, some things work in a 30,000 room seat room that, and, and don't in 60 and vice versa. That's amazing. I mean, you'd think you'd sort yeah. of hit a point yeah, where yeah. what difference could it possibly sure. make? But again, to get back to the festivals, to me, what we're hearing is so shaped by the situation. It's shaped by the technology that suits that situation and it's shaped by our, the environment altogether. So the sounds we experience at the festival are shaped by the size of the festival and the way that sound system mm-hmm. works and the way some things work for 60,000 that don't work for 30,000 and vice versa. It's an amazing idea to me that um, this would be the only experience of live music that most most people yeah. are going to have right now. And that's dreadful. As dreadful to me as the only experience of recorded music being streaming. Both, I think, can have their place in a full diet of oral experiences, but you shouldn't restrict it. It's like a monoculture. Mm. I think, you know, it's like you're going to make your ears sick. It's like eating only, you know, chicken to go back to a baseball example wade boggs third base they don't no, chicken some beer in there too. <laughs> chicken every meal yeah I look it up google a wade. lot of beer though i do know google, that, that yeah. about wade boggs yeah and um you know monoculture is not good no matter what and i think a lot of our economics push us to monoculture in listening our monoculture at the moment is being pushed toward streaming 
and live music toward festivals. But like Seven Nation Army is a great example of a song that clearly was not intended to you know be played at a baseball or football stadium. Mm-hmm. But there's something transcendent about it. It's a riff that works. Yeah, and you know I really admire Jack White for a lot of reasons and. Not least because he's capable of writing that riff. Yeah. Why not? You know, I think that's incredible. And it's a, it's amazing if you, if you Google, it's mostly used in Europe and South America, I think also. Google soccer stadium, football stadium, mm-hmm. European yeah. football and, uh, Seven Nation Army and you'll hear this incredible chant of people singing it. And that's, that's amazing. You know, why not? Melody that could work that way. Great. But, you know, Jack White's an interesting example because he's held on so much to what the other side of it means. Oh, yeah. He's a studio vinyl guy. Oh, he's got the means to play with yeah. it, too. So I recommend a visit if you've never been to, to Third Man Records in Nashville, where he's bought all these great toys yeah. from the 1930s and rigged them up and they're working in the in the record store. Record your own, uh, you know, record in a booth. Yeah. All things like that. And uh, it's a marvelous museum of analog uh, culture. But it is a museum. <laughs> to some degree. I mean, he really, yeah. you know, as I say, he's got the means to make things still happen. Yeah. To have a press, pre, a pressing plant is a miracle. And that's great. As somebody who, you know, obviously, again, primarily musician, but also a, a writer, you know, you, you have a publishing house, recently written this book. When it comes to writing about music, do you find that writing about the technology itself that's used to reproduce that music is your easiest in to trying to explain it? Obviously, the um, Elvis Costello dancing about architecture thing. Right. Is using technology, is that your way in to write about music? That's a really great question. It, I mean, it certainly has has become that. It's accidental, kind of like you don't ride Seven Nation Army for a soccer chair, sure. but it happens. I think what I'm writing about is an experiential approach to music. I'm not a musicologist. I can't read mm. written music. I did not study music in that way, ever. You're a, a drummer. Started on the drums. Yeah. Although, I mean, I started before drums on piano and guitar. Okay. My mom's a jazz singer. Mm. So I grew up with um, music from her and all her musician friends. There's a baby grand in the house. And so I was given piano lessons on my mom's piano and by her jazz musician friends and then i wanted to learn guitar so i you know took a few guitar lessons drums are what i didn't need lessons for because who teaches rock and roll drums are you kidding i mean i didn't know about the whole world of metal and all of that where you where you actually practice Uh, and i went to an urban school that didn't have a marching band so there was no question of learning rudiments Uh, so to me drums are just like a goof it was like the thing you didn't have to learn Mm. and so that's what i was gravitated toward i really like I mean, I still like just playing. I don't, I'm not a studied musician. I picked up a lot of experience along the way. You can't help it. But I never learned properly how to. You can't read music? No. I mean, I was taught, but it, but my reading music, I'm basically yeah. like a semi-literate person. I have to sit there and like sound out every single note. And so I'm sort of semi-literate in music and musicology in that way. Uh, and But what I feel I'm well-versed in is uh, the experience of music, and both making it and listening to it. And so what when I do write about um, music, that's my perspective. And actually how I started writing about music was writing about sound, mm. essentially, writing for art magazines about sound. For, before that, actually, the first assignments I got were writing for 
Tower Records used to have this free magazine called Pulse. I remember Pulse, yeah. It was great. It was a um, uh, a labor of love by the owner of Tower. He dreamed of having a magazine. Is that how you ended up interviewing Can? Uh, Can, that's right. I did the telephone interview with them for the first set of reissues in the 90s when I was working for Pulse. And it was a wonderful music writer who's, uh, you can look him up, Mark Wiedenbaum, was um, interviewed me as a musician for Pulse. And we got into this whole conversation, and it was right when CDs were had supplanted all uh, classical recording. And at the time, in the early 90s, I was very interested in uh, 20th century composition and educating myself in more avant-garde music, which is hard to come across. You mm-hmm. know, it's like CDs were kind of my only way in. Yeah. And they were tremendously expensive. So I was, you know, using the library and then choosing what I wanted. And I had friends making me tapes who had records. But um, mostly this was like a pretty high entry point to kind of learn the uh, history yeah. of the 20th century avant-garde music through CDs. And I mentioned this in the interview to Mark. And he said, oh, you know, we get these review copies. Would, would you ever be interested in writing about that kind of mm-hmm. music? And I said, yeah, if you send me the cds of course so i i traded my labor trying to write about this stuff for the for the free cds i ended up editing the classical section of pulse (laughs) you know like sort of after a little while because i think they enjoyed that i was like not i was writing about it from this weird perspective you weren't like super well versed in like bach and I mean, I know sure. that stuff because uh, I've listened to music all my life and yeah. I was given some music education, but but no. You weren't that guy. Not at all. Yeah. And I never took classical lessons past a few, you know, once I learned I didn't practice my piano pieces, I <laughs> moved to a jazz teacher. So no, I didn't have that in my background. But I could write about the experience. But the thing was that their classical columnists couldn't write about the avant-garde because, you know, it never made a sense. and. Yeah past Schoenberg, they really didn't cover this yeah. stuff. So I wanted to hear all this stuff, and I was very open to it and interested to it about in it because of the history of art. So I knew the history of visual art better than I knew the history of mm. 20th century avant-garde music. And I approached it through that and literature. So I knew all about surrealism, and I knew about the historical avant-garde and Dada and Cabaret Voltaire and all this stuff. So from Duchamp to John Cage was a natural... Exactly. And I'd already read Cage because I came to that through poetry and through literature. And Cage blew my mind when I read Silence, the book. And so I was, that's also why I was looking for the more music. So I traded my labor for that and started writing about records that were works of art, meaning the avant-garde tradition of the 20th century. And I felt very comfortable with that and I still do. So I did that and ended up um, meeting Cage and publishing a work of his at our publishing house that you know, I'm going to have called Exact Change. And then we published Morton Feldman's writings because of mm-hmm. that. And uh, so there's a whole little sort of part of the path of my career has been involved in avant-garde music, which a lot of which falls under classical for want of a better place for it. Um, but it's not classical music. Anyway, so that led to my writing for Art Forum and art magazines where they don't really write about music, they write about sound. So I wrote a lot in the, um, starting about 15, 20 years ago, more like 20, writing for the art magazines about sound in general, hmm. which sometimes meant writing about 
um, avant-garde music, but sometimes could mean writing about radio or mm. uh, I wrote about Bob Dylan's um, pre-streaming incredible satellite radio show that he did uh, for the serious. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For, you know, for our forum. Uh, so that sort of allowed me to write about music without writing as a musicologist. And then that led to things like pitchfork and stuff like that. And so, yeah, we, ultimately recently it's been about tech, but it's really been about sound from, from the get go. So I've been writing about the experience of sound and how we experience sound. Now digital comes in and has become such a dominant way of experiencing audio that I couldn't ignore it for myself. My own work is all tied into digital. And that's led to sort of thinking about that. And then also trying to manage my career as a musician. Mm -hmm. And because now I'm old enough, we have this catalog of recordings. You know, we are, we're only a band, but we're like a catalog. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because well, you're two bands. You're two bands. And you end up with all these old records and, you know, you kind of end up in yeah. uh, multiple kinds, parts of the industry. Uh, so now I have one band that's sort of like, you know, it's like I'm managing some obscure artist on Fantasy or Blue Note and another band where we're just like, you know, struggling to survive in the in the contemporary world. So you kind of get a lot of perspectives on what's going on. And that's I also want to just want to share this information. So a lot of my writing and about tech and the music business is also to democratize the information. You know, we get. We each get our royalty reports. We can't see one another's. And that's always been a block to collective action in the arts and in music particularly. You mean artists in general, right? not you and Naomi. <laughs> well, well, you know, strangely, we get individual BMI checks and we cannot yeah. figure out why hers is a few pennies more than mine. This Can might I... be the one instance where the woman actually gets, you know, <laughs> a little bit more. You know, somewhere in there, these, yeah. accounting is a very inexact thing. Yeah. And even if we own the same That's copyrights, so the checks will be different, yeah. which uh, is one of those little bits of information that you want to exploit yeah. and be like, now, why is that different? Well, the reason is because these things are totally inexact. They're yeah. not really giving you the full information or they, they might be giving you what they have, but it's not the full information. Anyway, you know, seeing what Galaxy 500 makes from Spotify and sharing that has been a very powerful gesture that I could make. You tell people specifically how much money it's generating? That's how I started writing about the music business was I wrote an article for Pitchfork detailing our own earnings from one song. And that allowed others to compare mm. what they were getting. And that led to a conversation about yeah. what we're all getting. But it's incredibly hard to get musicians to share this information. Sure. There's um, a sense of pride, ego around that, I suppose. There's that. And then there's the practical considerations that's built up in the music business, as a lot of entertainment, of making yourself seem bigger than you are. Yeah. Because, you know... If, Right now, I'm really interested in getting more people to share information about festivals. What are you really being paid mm. by festivals? Now, we're not on the festival circuit, so this is a situation where I can't share mine because I don't have it. But asking people who yeah. do, show your hand because I don't think this is working out for a lot of people. It's, it's almost a form of unionization. It's it's a kind of an anti you Oh, my effort. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. It's that the collective information... Yeah leads to collective bargaining. But when we're not allowed to share the information or, or we stop ourselves from sharing it, then everybody just thinks everybody else is doing okay when they're not. You know, so you're down on the bill, you're playing Coachella, but your name is in tiny little type. Yeah. And I am really curious 
are you actually making money at that show? Yeah. Or did this show cost you more than your earnings? What's that old joke? Artists die of exposure. That's very, very true. It's used against us all the time. And um, right now, you know, festivals have really are dominating the live music market in the way that, say, Spotify is dominating recording. And there's very little information to use to combat this as from a musician's point of view. Uh, but again, I don't have access to it. So it's yeah. going to take someone who does. So, But I'm waiting for that person, that band who's like got enough of a career in that world to have access to the information, but willing to show their hand. I know Billie Eilish listens to the podcast. Seriously? No. <laughs> she might. Uh, you know, I, I, and, I mean, I used yeah. Billie Eilish as an example because she won four major Grammy yeah. categories last night. And, um, but it's not to take her down. Because I do think this is the side of digital that we can't ignore. Yeah. That it is true she and her brother are making those records in their house, so far as I understand. And that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Now, that, that's not the full story of her success, but sure. it is the full story of the audio. And that's fascinating. You really can make that record that's top 40 in your bedroom. And in that regard, what her brother said at the Grammys last night was true. He said, everyone who makes songs in their bedroom can have this award. Now, that's not true because by definition, the Grammys does not go to everyone. (laughs) But it is true that the audio is available. Now, that's fascinating. That is Stephen Jobs' dream. But as I said at the beginning of this conversation, it, it came with a lot attached to it that maybe we don't appreciate or that we don't always think about what we're giving up to have that. 